Brent Snowcroft, one of the most significant figures in U.S. national security policy in the past half century, died this month at the age of 95. The retired Air Force general played vital roles in the national security landscape over the course of decades of public service, but probably none so much as how he defined the role of the National Security Council and successful management of the interagency process. Jeffrey Lightfoot is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He's a co-author of one of the many remembrances that have emerged about General Snowcroft in recent weeks. He talked about his legacy with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. And Jeff, I, I want to start our discussion with the story that you tell at the beginning of the piece about the deliberations in the cabinet room in 1990 mm-hmm. about how to respond to Saddam's invasion of Kuwait. I, I think it's mm-hmm. instructive, and, and there was there was much more debate and I guess indecision than I think I realized about what to do in mm. response. Less consensus mm-hmm. about whether to take the what we now think of as the inevitable path of expelling Saddam. Yeah. Yeah, and you you call those initial meetings disorganized and unfocused. What what did Scowcroft see in those events and the course of action that would actually be needed that the rest of the national security team didn't, at least at first? Well, I think General Scowcroft is an interesting person because there, he was very thoughtful not only on policy but also on process, and and he by virtue of having been national security advisor before for a deputy national security advisor to. President Nixon and President Ford's national security advisor, and then spending a lot of time thinking about the national security advisor role in the interagency process during the Reagan administration when he was involved in looking at sort of the Iran-Contra scandal and how it played out poorly. General Scowcroft had thought a lot about national security process, and I think in this instance, he had a good sense of that the, the military was perhaps reluctant to be involved. On first blush, there was still some hangover of the Vietnam syndrome that national interests were not be that the, the conversation was not focused as much on national interests, and that the discussion was was not bubbling up serious national security options for consideration with the president. It didn't take into mind this, the strategic nature of this of the question of what what is the kind of international order or the sets of rules and parameters that the United States would sort of like to see adhered to in the unfreezing of the Cold War. He saw this as a much bigger question of. Uh, one Middle Eastern country invading another, but really a bigger strategic question of of the kind of rules of the road that would frame an emerging post-Cold War environment. He didn't feel that that debate reflected the strategic questions at hand. And having spent a lot of time thinking about the process, realized that that would inform a set of bad recommendations for the president. And so it really was at that point that he felt that it was it was important to, to stop that debate, reframe and, and regroup to ensure that the, the president was getting was getting the, the best set of options put before him. I think that's the important thing, I think, about how General Scowcroft saw the role, which was, of course, he had opinions and the president wanted him to share those, but his job was to ensure a quality interagency process that produced a quality debate with the best options possible for the president. Yeah, and, and that point is kind of woven throughout your piece, that to be an effective national security advisor, you really need to understand not just the global security landscape and foreign policy issues. you got to really understand how our own government works and how to make it work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it requires – so a couple things I think made – General Scowcroft special, you know, almost all of his successors have come into the office saying that they wanted to try to emulate the relationship that he had with President Bush and the Scowcroft National Security Council model. And I think it required several things that that's proved elusive to many of, of General Scowcroft's successors. First of all, that role is so critical because it matters what kind of relationship the National Security Advisor has with the president. And 
General Scowcroft understood that President Bush was bringing in a team of strong personalities, and he wanted General Scowcroft to ensure the coherence of that team so that those strong personalities work together to produce the best outcomes and not against each other. General Scowcroft also had a keen eye for talent. I think one of the parts of his legacy that I'm really pleased is getting a lot of discussion now is the kind of mentor that he was in developing people, but also identifying strong people. And so he put a lot of thought into who would form the structure of his relatively small National Security Council team. And then the third thing that General Scowcroft had that was a little unique was a, a personality, a self-effacing ego uh, that allowed him to not make himself the part of the policy process, but focused on outcomes. And so he was able to build trust with the cabinet secretaries to allow them to be feel comfortable that their position would be brought to the president and not, you know, taken over uh, by a, an egotistical national security advisor. So here you had a guy who could manage up to the president across the cabinet secretaries and effectively down with his staff. I think that produced an outcome that his successors have found difficult to uh, to replicate. Go, going back to the Cold War piece, you know, that, that four years of the first Bush administration were incredibly eventful, as, as you lay out in some detail, yeah. as, you know, the Warsaw Pact and the East-West divisions and the Soviet Union all mm-hmm. kind of unwinding incredibly quickly. And I think President Bush usually gets most of the credit for handling all of that pretty deftly. Mm-hmm. But, but how much of it was really Scowcroft and his thinking and his advice? Well, it's funny because, well, so first of all, I think General Scowcroft would be the first to tell you that the, the, the president deserves all that the credit as the, as the visionary and the elected official. And, and certainly you had, uh, you know, Secretary Baker played a huge impact in, in, in his negotiations with uh, the Soviets about German reunification and things. So it really, I think, was a team effort. I think General Scowcroft, interestingly enough, came in and framed the discussion and the debate early on. Interestingly, Scowcroft later in life after leaving government developed a bit of a reputation as something of a dove because of his skepticism of military intervention, particularly his criticism of the 2003 Iraq war. What's funny is he came into the Bush administration actually one of the leading hawks about the Soviet Union because Gorbachev uh, and Reagan had had a number of arms control achievements and Gorbachev was making unilateral military drawdowns within uh, Europe that, that were politically very popular, but General Scowcroft saw those as militarily sort of significant, but they weren't changing the political nature of illiberal communist regimes in Eastern Europe. So General Scowcroft decided to, to let's have a review of the Reagan policy, but let's have our own independent foreign policy that would not just let ourselves be swept away by Gorbachev's initiative. Let's get in front of this, which was the president's guidance. So General Scowcroft, I think, helped frame that debate to ensure that uh, the changes that would be taking place in Europe were not cosmetic, but they were real. So I think that was the first thing. Secondarily, uh, certainly management of this process, uh, you saw the, the instinctive caution General Scowcroft and President Bush shared to not revel in this moment and rub it in the in the Soviets' uh, eyes, so to speak, which might have escalated the situation. Um, and But I think General Scowcroft admitted in, in some posthumously published interviews recently that he was more cautious than President Bush about uh, German reunification. And so I think, you know, credit for that largely belongs to the president, as it should be, and probably to Secretary Baker. But certainly the care and management of this incredibly complex set of events that could have gone very badly, I think largely it deserves credit to the whole administration, but certainly to General Scowcroft for helping shepherd that process at a really difficult point in time. Secretary Gates, who was General Scowcroft's deputy at the time, has pointed out that uh, really, and never in history before had an empire uh, collapsed like that without leading to war. And I think that that leaves a lot of credit 
to give to that administration. I just want to acknowledge that we're not doing justice to General Scowcroft's multi-decade national service career by focusing mostly on his time as national security advisor here. But but just mm-hmm. to wrap up mm-hmm. on that point, mm-hmm. what, what mm-hmm. in your view was his role on the National Security Advisor, the National Security Council mm-hmm. as an institution and how it's operationalized, what it actually does within an, a, any given administration? So where, where General Scowcroft's legacy, I think this is this is probably going to be the most enduring part of his legacy, because we talked about the policy achievements of the administrations in which he served, which are impossible to dissociate in some ways from the president who was was the really deserves most of the credit or the blame or other cabinet secretaries. It was General Scowcroft's um, creation, I think, of the modern NSC staff and structure um, and process that that really has largely endured. Of course, it's evolved and changed in some ways, but um, you know, it was really since he's been around, you've had sort of a principals committee and a deputies committee to allow the interagency to quickly um, adjudicate, discuss, and debate issues uh, below the level of the president, so that the interagency process produces crisp, um, focused, holistic uh, outcomes. And so that structure has largely stayed in place and has been one that, that many have seek to emulate. And really, the idea is, is not to be operational. And I think that's where some National Security Council staffs have maybe, particularly in the Obama administration, you heard stories of the NSC staff growing, uh, becoming 400 people, whereas General Scowcroft was, was more like 40, and becoming more involved in the implementation of policy, whereas General Scowcroft wanted it to be a place that could that could coordinate uh, subtle debates across the interagency and then ensure that the best policy recommendations and options were given to the president. And I think now we've seen a realization the NSC staff might have gotten too big and a desire to, to shrink that back down. But of course, Every president sets the tone for the NSC that that he or maybe she wants. And so ultimately, that structure, which has largely survived, is going to be varied based on the way that the president wants it to evolve and perhaps the personalities of other the relationship with other cabinet secretaries. Is it your impression that that he had a relatively small NSC staff because he wanted it that way by design, or or was that just the deck of cards he, he was? Yeah, de- it, it's actually fascinating. The the uh, University of Virginia's Miller Center has just re- released the second part of these ex- incredibly in depth interviews with General Scowcroft that are really fascinating because they really delve. You really get a sense for how much this this man understood the process and working of government after having served in that job and two times and having been President Ford's national security advisor, when he was asked by President Bush to to resume that role in 1989, he had deep thinking about what worked and what didn't. And he did want a relatively small staff with a good number of details, but that he had picked with minimal interference from the political types that would really be focused on the mission. And so he had a sense that if it got too big, instinctively it would become operational, which is not what the NSC was supposed to do. And and since then, it's it certainly has it's, it's tended to grow until the most current administration here has, has shrunk it back down. Jeffrey Lightfoot, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. We'll post a link to the Atlantic Council's much more detailed commentary about Brent Snowcroft's legacy at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast1 to learn more and start your free trial.